good morning. morning. It's good to see you today. I want to welcome those of you who are uh, joining us right now online uh, or in the chapel, the warehouse, or at an off-site campus. Uh, Glad you're along too on this great American holiday, (laughs) Super Bowl Sunday. Now, um, how many of you are Baltimore fans? Any Baltimore fans? Yeah, three. Okay. Who else is in this? How many are San Francisco fans? Anybody? All right. Wearing the stuff. Yeah. How many of you really don't care? You just. All right. How about this? How many of you are like me and just glad it's not Pittsburgh? Huh? Anybody? (laughs) Oh, yeah. 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 Let's do an altar call right now to get some Pittsburgh fans saved. Okay. I just said that because there's lots of you. But uh, it'll be fun. Hope you have a good time. Glad you stopped by church on the way to the Super Bowl party. I really am. It's great. Um, we're excited about uh, today um, and also excited about the series that's coming up, uh, Make Room. Now, that blooper reel was not fair, uh, you know, but uh, whatever. But uh, glad that you're going to be a part. Um, in fact, I was preparing this morning. I was, I was up studying for next week's message. We're going to take one story from the Old Testament that most of us probably are not even familiar with, and we're going to preach on it for six weeks and tie it together with the concept of making room. Uh, uh, We can't make God move, but we can make room for God to move in our life. And this week is kind of a a prep for next week. And uh, what I did is I've asked a friend to come and share with us for a few minutes this morning. has a great message that will set us up for what God's going to do next week. Um, His name is Darren Patrick. Uh, he was with us at First Wednesday just a few months ago. Uh, Darren pastors a church in St. Louis, uh, Missouri. Great church, several thousand people, multi-site. Uh, he's the uh, chaplain for the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, he's already told me that when the Cardinals play the Cubs, that I can come and do the chapel for both teams. And I'm already nervous about that. Uh, but it could be the thing that will turn the Cubs around uh, to win, <laughs> to win uh, the World, or to go. Just go. We don't even want to win. We just want to go to the World Series. And, uh, but anyway, uh, uh, Darren also is a, a church planner. He planted the church where he's at, Journey Church in St. Louis. And he is vice president of Acts 29 Network, which is similar to the Ark, uh, which uh, is, is a church planning network and has planted hundreds of churches all over the world. And, um, and uh, besides that, he's a great guy and he's a good friend of mine and uh, uh, one of the better Bible teachers, I think, that I have ever heard. And I asked him, I said, Come talk to us about the importance of community. And so would you welcome uh, Darren as he comes and he shares with us for a few minutes this morning. Thanks, buddy. So my job uh, today is to get you ready for this uh, awesome series. So this is like the pre-pre-pre-game party for the Super Bowl, and I'm like the opening band uh, that you don't want to listen to, but you have to because you got to get there to get the seat right for next week's series that begins. So I'm just wetting our appetite to get there. Um, and I was thinking about really the essence and core of Christianity. I don't know if sometimes you get a little uh, complicated in your faith that you kind of forget what is basic. And uh, Jesus helps clear that up. One time, some religious leaders came to him and said, "Okay, what's this thing all about?" Like. You're this new prophet guy. You're talking about some things we understand, but some things we don't understand. And Jesus says, uh, it's real simple. Uh, love God and love people. And this is actually revolutionary that, that, our, that 
that, that somebody would have a faith that was based not just on a relationship with God and not just on relationship with people, but that it's both, right? That, that when we love people, we're loving God, and if we're loving God, we will love people. So I want to talk to you about com- community, and I want to talk to you uh, about really the beginning of community, and then I want to talk to you about some barriers that keep you from community, and then we're going to get into some um, behaviors that um, facilitate community. And to get there, we're going to read from the book of Galatians. If you have your Bible um, or your phone that's on your Bible or your Bible that's on your phone, and uh, we're going to read in, at the end of the book of Galatians, and starting in verse 26 of chapter 5, Galatians 5, 26, and then we'll read a few verses into chapter 6. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Chapter 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Verse 3, for if anyone thinks he's something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Now what I love about Christianity is you do not have to check your life at the door, that it intersects with what really is our deepest needs. And though we try to deny it, and though we try to kind of fake it, the reality is that we need relationships. Now, the problem is, and all of us can attest to this, and many of us have have experienced this personally, you're hurt in relationships. But the good news, and this text tells us, that we're also healed in relationships. Now, if we're going to talk community, we're going to talk relationships, um, we've got to go back to the beginning, literally the beginning of time. This is going to be a long sermon, okay? The beginning, the very first uh, chapter in the book of Genesis, God is creating. The, the God who is uncreated begins to create. And he has this little uh, benediction that Moses adds after God creates. Moses is the author of Genesis, the human author, and it, God would create, and then Moses would say, and it was good, right? And it was good. And at the end, when God creates his prize creation, human beings made in his image, it says, Genesis 1.31, it was very good. So everything's awesome, everything's wonderful, and then you get into chapter 2, and you see this crazy verse in verse 18 that says, then the Lord God said, it's not good. Now what's not good? A person without a relationship. Okay, now th- this is about marriage, but it's more than marriage, right? That, that it is not good for Adam to be alone. And so as you're reading the Bible, you're like, well, did God screw this deal up from the beginning? Like, th- it, did, he, did he mess up from, no, no, no. God, this wasn't like an accident. Oh, man, I forgot Eve. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay, well, let's. Well, sorry, Adam, we got to pull that rib out, bro. Sorry, I'm going to put you to sleep, though. It won't hurt too bad. No, 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 no. This was intentional. God intentionally made Adam incomplete. God did this because by himself, Adam could not reflect the relational, multipersonal nature of God. 
Now, this is what makes Christianity unique and distinct because in all other religions, now check me on this, in all other religions, bold statement, there is either a, an impersonal God, meaning this God doesn't have a will, doesn't feel, doesn't speak, doesn't you know, uh, have a plan or a purpose. It's like the Star Wars God. It's just the force, right? It's all around us, right? It's the, that, so you've either got an impersonal God or you have a unipersonal God, a one-person God. And so that God existed forever, and then one day that God decided to create. And so he created angels, human beings, but it wasn't until he created that he had a relationship. He existed for eternity without one, and so then once he created, he had a relationship. So a lack of relationship in a unipersonal God does not affect the very being and nature of God. But Christianity says we have a triune God. One God, but three persons. One what, three who's. You got that figured out? Yeah, me neither, right? But who would want a God we can completely comprehend rationally and, and understand perfectly uh, with regard to his nature? God has existed forever as three persons. In all other religions, especially religions that just say there is only a one-person God, relationships tacked on it's added it, it's something that's kind of thrown in there but in christianity relationship is at the very core and being of god and so that says something about why adam is alone now i remember as a new christian uh, i was reading the bible and this is how you know you're really reading the bible okay you're confused I was confused. And so I got to this point, and I'm reading, very good, very good, very good, everything God created. 2.18, it's not good. What? God, so, so the, oh, Eve comes. I'm going to make a helper fit for him. That's cool. But why would God create human beings anyway? Why, why would he felt the need? Because chapter 3, the wheels fall off, right, the book of Genesis? Things go from bad to real bad, right? And... So I asked one of my leaders in my church, and he said, well, why, why did God create Adam, and why, why would he create us? And he said, well, obviously God was lonely, is what he said. Now, that sounds kind of cool. Maybe we could write some worship songs about that. But I, I, I don't think that's consistent, right? Because if God forever now, and I'm, when I say forever, I mean eternity past, like a long, 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 long time ago, like forever ago, God has existed in a trinity, in, you know, three persons that were doing perfect relationship, perfect service, perfect celebration, perfect community. If that's happening, you think that God needed a friend? No. God wasn't lonely. That didn't lead him to create Adam. God was a trinity, and he created Adam because he wanted an image. Because by himself, Adam could not reflect the fullness of of the being of God. And this says something to us. What it says is that us by ourselves cannot reflect the one and true God. Doesn't mean you have to be married, but it does mean you have to be in community. Because you can't by yourself connect and reflect with God and show God to the world. You say, wait a minute, I, you know, I listen to worship music, I have my own quiet time. Uh, you know, who says I need people? Well, are you better than Adam before the sin entered the world? 
I mean, think about this. It wasn't enough for Adam to just have God. It's a bold statement. God said, God said it, though, right? It's not good. You need somebody. You need somebody to connect to. You need someone to relate to. And friends, this is when the Trinity is really beautiful. Have you tried to explain the Trinity to someone lately? How'd they go for you? Right? Wait a minute. So Jesus is God, but he's talking to God. Uh huh. So Jesus is God, but he's called the Son of God. Yep. The Holy Spirit's like a dove flapping around. What does this mean? I mean, it's hard to like, help people understand the Trinity. But when you understand relationship and how that is the core of humanity, and then you backtrack to the beginning and say, wait a minute, we want relationships, we desire relationships, we bloom in relationships because we are reflecting the God who is relationship. Right? So this is the beginning of community. Now, the problem with relationship is people. It may be awesome. It's like college was great except for the classes, right? I mean, it's just like <laughs> we're always getting hurt. We're always getting disappointed. We're hurting others. We're disappointing others. This is just the way it is, right? Relationships are difficult. Relationships are hard. And what I love about this text is it shows us why this is so. It shows us why we have barriers to really connecting with people. It tells us why we dread going to family reunions. It tells us why some of us are in work situations that we really don't love. It tells us why some of us are struggling in our marriages. It tells us why some of us have difficulty relating to our children or grandchildren. It tells us what keeps us from embracing and fulfilling the purpose that God has for us, which is Rich, deep, abiding relationships. And it does so, this text, with three words. Okay? The first word, and you see it in verse 26 of Galatians chapter 5, is the word conceited. Translated um, conceited. Now, this is from two Greek words. Uh, keno, which means empty, and doxa, which means glory. Keno, doxa. Right? So a conceited person is a person who is empty of glory. Now, you sing the, you know, the word all the time. You, you may read it in the Bible. What the heck does the word glory mean? Well, the word glory comes from a word in the Old Testament that means weight. The idea is weightiness, substance, significance. To say something has glory is to say that it's important, that it's meaningful, that, it's, that, it's, that it has matter to it. We even use the idiom, right? It doesn't what? It doesn't matter, right? Because that, that, that's empty of glory. So, so here's what a conceited person is. A lot of times we think a conceited person is someone who's overly confident, massively secure, who thinks they're better than everybody. Actually, a conceited person knows they're nothing. They have a sense of this emptiness, right? They, they have a real sense that they're not what they should be, but they're desperately trying to prove to themselves and to other people that they are, in fact, somebody, even though they know they are no one. I, I, you know, conceited people actually are in tune with the fact that they're very ordinary. Do you remember the first time you ever realized you were ordinary? I mean, your mom always told you you were a unique snowflake and you were going to be president. And, <laughs> and then one day you're like, ah, oh, that may not work out. For me, it was fifth grade. It was basketball, and our team was undefeated, and there was another team that was undefeated. 
and we were playing that team, and, and my friend Jason Chambers was on that team, and Jason, this is fifth grade, he was like 6'5 in fifth grade, not really, but it seemed like it, and so they smoked us, right? And I remember thinking that day, I, maybe I'm not going to play in the NBA, you know? I don't know, this is going to work out. And I felt very ordinary. I want you to think about for a second how much energy you spend to try to not feel ordinary. See, the, the culture is t- talking to us about this stuff. I mean, do you listen to music? I mean, if you, especially kind of like, in, in, you know, indie rock or country songs, I mean, they're, they're really helpful, right, theologically, because they really tell us about the, the kind of the depth of human nature. And so, and then sometimes these artists speak, right, and, and, and they can be very helpful. And I, and I found a quote from the Apostle Madonna years ago. <laughs> now, Madonna used to be something, right? I mean, she was very popular, and, and um, I mean, she's still doing it. It's not quite the same, but she, she had some very interesting incidents. I want you to listen to what she said. This is People magazine years ago when she was really popular. She said, I have an iron will because I understand my fears. I push past one level of fear and, and discover myself as a special human being. I push past another level and discover that I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Then I find a way to get past that level time and time again. Listen to what she says. My drive in life is to not feel mediocre. That's what pushes me. Because even though though I have become someone to others, I still push myself to prove that I'm someone to myself. My struggle has never ended, and it never will. Conceited people are trying to be something that they're not. They sense this emptiness. And instead of letting that emptiness, that reality of a lack of glory, push them vertically to God, what happens is we express it horizontally to people. And we do it through our words and we do it through our attitudes. The first word was conceited. This is what keeps us from community. The second word is provoking. This is the result of operating out of emptiness, right? Provoking is when you challenge, you look down at someone. It's basically a superiority complex. It's traditionally what we think of when we call someone arrogant, right? Someone who just thinks they're kind of better, someone who thinks they've kind of got it together. And so they kind of live to kind of, you know, better, make themselves feel better than other people, make themselves feel more uh, solid, more secure than other people. They tend to ignore strugglers. Their attitude is, if, if I made it, you can make it. Well, if you would just do what I did, you'd be fine, right? Now, I, you know, this doesn't take rocket science to figure this one out, right? Like, uh, do you want to be pe- around people like that? Is that who you hope is in your home group, right? Is that, is that how you chose your Super Bowl party this year? I really want to go around people who are going to look down on me, make me feel insecure, and think they're better than me. That's my goal. Let me be around a bunch of those people, right? No! Right? It's a barrier to relationship. Also, on the other side, there's envying, the text says in verse 26. So envying is when not when you look down, but when you look up, when you, when you want what you don't have. Coveting is when you want someone else's stuff. Envying is when you want somebody else's life. Right? So you're wanting to be, and so you're, 
put yourself in that situation. Maybe you've been there. Maybe someone's been that way with you. When someone is always trying to get your life or be like you or want what you have, is that good fodder for relationship? No. No, because you're feeling used or you're feeling, you're always feeling watched or you're always feeling like they, you know, if you look away, they're going to take your stuff. And, 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 and a lot of times those people, you just kind of feel this sucking sound and they're, they're stealing life force from your body, right? You're just kind of like, oh man, what is going on? That's a person who is envying you. And you cannot have a relationship with a person who is envying you and you cannot have a relationship with a person that you're living in envy toward. It's a barrier to relationship. You say, well, I don't know if I envy anything. I don't know if I want anything. Well, let me ask you a question. What do you dream about? I don't mean, I don't mean at night. I mean, you know, those are crazy dreams, but, right? <laughs> Thank God we don't remember most of those. But what do you daydream about? Like, what are your, what are your little fantasies that you have, your your little ideas of, oh, if I could be this person, if I could have this, and if I could do that. See, that shows us if we have this issue with envying. Now, these three words, conceit, provoking, envy, this is what keeps us from experiencing relationship. This is why your family's dysfunctional. This is why your work environment's so political. This is why you struggle relationally with other Christians because you're committing these sins or you're being sinned against with these particular sins. But thankfully, the Bible doesn't just leave us in the fetal position telling us about all of our sin, right? It tells us how we can behave, specifically what we, we can become. And so the very first word of chapter 6 says, brothers. Now, this is important for us Americans because we tend to privatize and individualize our faith. And we think, if I just have a quiet time, read my Bible, pray by myself, if I just plug in some of the band's worship music, if I just go to church and kind of get some spiritual nourishment, I'm good, right? I'm okay. Listen to some Christian radio maybe. Maybe, you know, when I'm really bored, listen to one of Greg's sermons, something, right? It's just me happening. I'm not saying he's boring. I'm saying you're bored. But we think we don't need other people. And so here's what you have to understand about the Bible. There are dozens of verses in the New Testament that you cannot obey by yourself. We just are going to read a few of those, by the way. In the Old Testament, there isn't one thing written to individuals. It's written to God's covenant people. In the New Testament, there is not one word written to just a person. It's either to a person that represents a bunch of churches, or it's either to a church, or it's either to a community. God meant his word to be read and applied and obeyed as a community. And so he doesn't say brother, sister. What does he say? Brothers and sisters, right? Now, he gives us an opportunity here, not just to become something, something individually, but to become something as a community. We're talking as a church right now, Seacoast Church. What could you become together if you're experiencing real community? What are the behaviors of healthy community? And it, it applies to the church, it applies to your family, it applies everywhere. But the good thing about the local church is we get to practice this stuff on each other, okay? So, 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 so don't try this at work first, try it here. Some of you don't need to try this in your family first, but you can try it here. 
The local church is the training ground for community. So here's one of the things that can happen. We can become a community of restoration. If you look in chapter 6, verse 1, um, it says, If anyone is caught in any transgression, so the tr word transgression means sin, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. So this is the behavior of community. We restore one another. Now, don't equate restoration with accommodation. What I mean is don't think it just means just be nice to people, don't confront. No, actually, restoration equals confrontation. If you understand the word restore, it was the word in the first century they used when somebody would break a bone and they would set the bone. Have you ever had that privilege? Not exactly a wonderful experience during it during the setting. But afterwards, it's good. Same way with restoration. We are to restore one another. Certainly that implies love. Certainly that implies grace. Certainly that implies mercy. But it also implies confrontation, which brings us to my favorite verse in the Old Testament, I think. And I say this about 25 or 30 verses, but this is one of the 25 verses. I love Proverbs chapter 27, verse 5 and 6. It says, better is an open rebuke than love that is concealed. And then this wonderful little phrase, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. So now get the logic of this verse. A wounding friend is better than a kissing enemy. And what we tend to have in our communities is a bunch of, right? Niceties. Is there nothing worse than someone who's nice to your face but not so nice behind your back? Well, I just love, I just love Joe. He's just always so kind, right? If Joe never tells you the truth, Joe's an enemy, according to this verse. Truth and grace, right? This is a part of what it means to be a restorative community. So in, I mean, just right now, all of us who are participating in this sermon— there, in the, you know, we're dealing with sexual sin, we're dealing with addiction, we're dealing with deep hurts that are causing us to, you know, act in strange ways, right? Eating disorders, self-destructive patterns, and the church is to be a place that lets people know, you know what? Your sin is not going to be harshly judged, because we're all sinners, but your sin is going to be, um, you, we are going to encourage you with your sin to repent in community. We're going to help you move past your addiction. We're going to help you move past your hurts. And we're not going to do it with just sermons and music and, you know, go to some program. We're going to do it life on life in community. That's the way the local church works. Why? Because we are a community of restoration. Now, for this to work, we have to be a community of self-correctors. Okay? At the end of verse 1, it tells us, you know, restore one a person that's caught in a, in, a, in a sin, but keep watch on yourselves, it says. Keep watch on yourselves lest you too be tempted. Now, here's the hard part because it's really easy to go out of here with a message like this, and some of us are just wired this way to think, okay, um, I'm going to go and straighten some people out. I got some grievances. I'm going to air them, okay? I'm going to let... No, 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 no. 
Paul, Paul is very specific here. In fact, that's what verse 4 is talking about. It says, let each one test his own work, right? And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, not his neighbor. In other words, what Paul is saying is exactly what Jesus said, which is be concerned about others' sin, but be concerned about your sin first. The most famous verse in, in the Bible now, and I say famous meaning uh, the, the verse that every American knows. It used to be John 3.16, right? That's not the verse everybody knows anymore. Everyone knows Matthew 7, 1. Have you, have, you, have you seen this in culture, right? Judge not lest you be judged. Everyone knows that verse, right? Now, they totally misapply it because they take that as Jesus said not to judge. You better keep reading in Matthew 7. Because what Jesus says is he's not against judging, he's against self-righteous judging. And he uses this humorous illustration that we miss sometimes. Tons of humor in the Bible, by the way. Jesus uh, says, uh, if you're going to get a splinter out of your neighbor's eye, um, it might be helpful for you to take the two-by-four that's lodged in your eye. Now, my picture is Jesus picked up, I don't think they had two-by-fours back then, but he picked up a big stick, and he had this stick that he's holding it. And he's probably hitting the disciples in the head, probably gave Peter a little extra whack right as he's moving across. And, he, and he's like humorously trying to take out a speck with this big stick. And he said, listen, lose the stick so that you can see carefully. I mean, you ever had a splinter in your eye? You don't want someone who's uh, got sharp fingernails, right? Or dirty fingernails. You don't want someone who's like, hey, just let me get in there. Just come on. No, no. Careful. Thorough and specific is what you need. And what Paul is saying is, as you're going to become this community of restoration, you have to first become a community where you're taking your sin more seriously than other people say. It's not that you don't take their sin seriously. No, you're going to get the splinter, but you're worried about your sin more. Now, just for, let's just stop for a second. What would happen if the church did that? What, what would our communities say? Because right now what, the, what our communities say is the church, oh yeah, those are the people who are against a bunch of stuff. What if the, church, what if the community peeked in at the church and said, wow, those people, they have some stands, they have some beliefs that I don't agree with, but man, they, they're really concerned about them. They really want, they're really focused on their own sin. Like what would that do, Right? This is our opportunity. And this is what Jesus says, right? Jesus says, you know, deal with your own sin first. You have to critique yourself. Now, another way to get to it is verse 5. Paul says, each one will have to bear his own load. Each one will have to bear his own load. Now, the word load is the word for backpack, basically. Something you can carry by yourself. When I was in college, I was a, um, I was a Bible student. I was in a, a Christian university, and I had all of these, like, huge, like, Bible theology books. And so my backpack was just, like, maxed out with these big books. And I've, I have back problems to this day because of that stupid backpack that I carried, all those big theology books. So I'm walking down the hall, and then th this started happening. I didn't have any money. I ate ramen noodles, like, four nights a week. Can I get a witness, right? So... And I'm walking down the hall, and then just suddenly what would happen is the backpack would just blow up, blow apart, right? The zipper would go down, and these books would go spilling everywhere. I think I broke a dude's toe one time, no joke. One of these books, like, careened down. What Paul is saying here is, 
in the community of restoration that is trying to self-correct, don't spill your backpack everywhere. Right? Take care of your own stuff. Don't bring that into the community. Now, this is kind of counterintuitive because certainly in community we get to be honest and transparent and vulnerable, but you and I both know, not just in the church situation, but in the family and work situation and in the friendship situation, sometimes people come in to a, a you know, relationship, we're hanging out, we're doing a, a, you know, a study, whatever it is, and they bring all kinds of stuff with them, right? And then they're blaming everyone else or it just kind of spills out. Paul's saying, listen you got to bear your own load. Now, this sounds contradictory. Once again, you, don't, you, you know you're reading your Bible when you're confused. Now, if you look in verse 5 and you look in verse 2, it looks like we have a contradiction, doesn't it? Verse 5 says, bear your own load, carry your own load. But verse 2 says, bear one another's burdens. Well, which is it? Do I carry my own load or do I bear someone else's burdens? The answer class is yes. Yes. Because a burden is, is a different word. It's the word that, that literally means something you can't carry by yourself, right? Something you can't easily take responsibility for. And so the church is to be a place of burden bearers. I remember um, I helped start a church when I was in seminary. And we had this wonderful couple that used to greet, you know, pass out bulletins and greet people. And they were the most kind, gentle they were just awesome. I, I talked to them and almost, you know, every, every weekend. And one weekend they weren't there. And I said, I can't remember their names, Bob and Susie. Uh, we're Bob and Susie. Oh, um, uh, they're not here. They sent a weird letter to the church office. I'm like, yeah, they said they're, they're, uh, they're getting divorced. And I was like, I thought it was a joke. I'm like, well, that's funny. They're, you know, no, 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 they really are. No one knew. They were the head of the greeting team, right? And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, these people had this burden. No one shared because for whatever reason, they thought that they had to bear that themselves. I found a lot of people who are serving in the church that way, and they actually serve in hopes that somehow that is going to bear the burden. So, if, God, if I do this, you'll take this burden away. That's not how it works. God says, I'll take this burden away when you share it with the people around you, not just when you do religious activity. Right? Bear one another's burdens. Um, Martin Luther said it this way, one of the leaders of the Protestant Reformation. He said, um, this may encourage some of us about our diets too, kind of have dual meaning here. A Christian must have broad shoulders and husky bones in order to carry the burdens of his brothers and sisters. See, God wants you to critique yourself to deal with your own sin, not just so that you can be a healthy, a healthy, happy Christian in yourself, but so that you have capacity to bear other people's pain. It's the way it works. Well, I thought that was the staff's job. I thought that, that's what the pastors did. No, actually, the pastors equip you to do this, Ephesians chapter 4 says. And this verse in Gal this, this, these verses in Galatians, I didn't see at the beginning of the book, to the pastors at Galatia. No, it's to the people of God. Friends, this is our opportunity. This is the kind of community we can become. 
And, and, and I know it's scary because here's the reality for many of you. Right now, some of you are, um, you didn't come from a good home, meaning that it wasn't life, you know, it wasn't affirming, it wasn't encouraging. Uh, there was either too much truth or too much grace, and there wasn't a good balance. You were either, everything was condoned and, 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 and everything was great, or you were just beat to death with, you should do this, you ought to do this. So you don't have a paradigm. Many of you have been betrayed by good friends, some, of, some, of, some even family. So, so, so you come in going, I, what in the world is this, all this stuff? Some of you actually dove into community, may, maybe here at Seacoast, and, and, it, and it was sweet for a season, but you got really hurt. And you're going, I don't know. It's like, do I stick my hand back into the fan, right? Some, some of you are perfectly happy um, because you have a community of two or three people. But it's not really a community of restoration. It's not really a community of self-correctors. It's not really a community of burden bearers. It's a community of affinity, which means you surround yourself with people who are just like you because it reminds you of how great you are. See, most relationships, most friendships are based around our, our, our uh, idolatry. In other words, we all share the same idol, and so we don't really challenge each other, but we all like worshiping that idol. Hope I didn't blow up any of these Super Bowl parties today, okay? <laughs> but it's not a community of challenge. It's not a community of sharing. It's not a community of celebration. See, this is what makes the church unique. I mean, no other place can you get around a bunch of weird people like us, right? that are different than us, that don't act like us, smell like us, vote like us, look like us. I mean, this is an incredible opportunity that you just can't get anywhere else, really. And this is our opportunity. So do not, church, live beneath your privilege. Do not settle for being just a consumer or a critic. Be a contributor and be a brother or a sister. This is our great privilege as the body of Christ. Let's pray. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us not to settle for religious activity, that you would help us not to settle for Christianity in a vacuum. Lord, I pray that you would show us what it could, be, what it could look like to share our lives with other people. Lord, I know many of us have been hurt. I know, I know many of us are, um, have layers and layers and layers of self-protection that, that, would, would, are, that are screaming right now, it's too good to be true. I'll just get hurt again. I, I know I, it sounds great. I, I, I see it in the Bible, but I just can't go there. Lord, would you challenge that in a very comforting way? Would you show people that they can trust you again through other people? that you have sent into their life. Lord, we're in your hands. We ask you to speak to us. Amen.